Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Scott Reardon. I've known Scott for a while, met him through Toby Carlisle and Jake Taylor. Somebody pinged me and they said, hey, you should interview Scott Reardon. And I thought, self, that dude is right. I totally should interview Scott Reardon. And I pinged Scott and we got to talking and he shared some papers that he has written. He studied the greatest investors and then he did one on cyclicality of markets in life. I will drop both those in the show notes. It's a very interesting conversation. I had a good time. That said, I had to record it twice because I messed up the first one, but I'm not perfect. Anyway, as far as the cadence goes, I am going to uh, try to do weekly shows. There's going to be times that I can't get it out. I don't want to force episodes upon you that I would not want to listen to. So I don't want to get in this cadence where I get jammed up and then I'm releasing something that I don't like. And I don't really like the idea of having a backlog because I think that some of the conversations get stale. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit on the release cadence. I'll do my best, but... This dude's got a lot going on in life right now, and sometimes getting the pod done just isn't quite the top priority. But I appreciate you all as listeners, and I do want to get stuff out in a regular and timely manner. As always, nothing that you hear in this program is investment advice. You should consult your own financial advisor. Do your own due diligence. This is for entertainment purposes only. Assume I know nothing and uh, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Oh, P.S. I'm probably going to drop some Spotify ads in the show. Hit me up at Bill Brewster TBB on the Twitter machine to let me know your feedback on whether or not the ads were disruptive to your experience, whether or not you found them targeted. I'm kind of interested in using this as a uh, group learning exercise. You know, Spotify says that they have some good ad solutions. I'm a little, um, call me skeptical, but I kind of want to try it, and I'd love to hear your feedback. All right, enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. Thrilled to be joined by Scott Scott Reardon, not Scott Pearson. I don't know what I was thinking there. Um, So we were just talking about offline. You finished your fifth novel? Yeah, I just finished it um, a couple weeks ago, and then... I feel like I can do absolutely nothing. I'm just totally drained. And then you reached out to me and I was like, this is perfect. I reached out to you for a second time. You reached out to me for a second time. The first time I kind of ruined the conversation. So I apologize to you, even though apparently you didn't think so. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. I was psyched. I I went downstairs afterwards and my in-laws were here and I had a couple cocktails. And I mean, it's the first time I'd ever been on a podcast. I was excited. Well, here's the second, but it's technically going to be the first. And as I told you, I'll be on here as much as you'll have me. <laughs> well, I'll have you a lot. I think, I, I don't know what the issue was. My mind, I, I had a lot of disjointed thoughts. My wife and I were listening to it in the car and she was like, you didn't finish many sentences here. So, Do you know so what's there funny? was that. I, I was struggling too. I didn't want to admit it, but I, I hadn't slept the night before. There was some issue with one of my kids. And then, you know, we had a cocktail. And normally when I have the cocktail, I feel great. I feel like myself. Right. Yeah. I just feel wonderful. But that time I just felt a little bit blank. Well, there you go. So now neither of us are blank. And no. uh, today I'm drinking water as opposed to bourbon. I'm drinking so, water as well. 
we've got that going for us. Yeah. This may go better. I, I thought the last time went fine, I hope, but I hope it goes even better. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was. You know, I think um, when I was listening to it, I'm like caught up on this. Uh, I'm reading the psychology of uh, intelligence analysis and thinking in bets. And I'm like caught up on my own perception of reality versus reality and how I don't think that I perceive reality as reality or whatever. And there was just mm -hmm. a lot of like weird conversation uh, when I listened to it. But I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, so hopefully people enjoy the, uh, the listening experience of this conversation. Yeah, I hope so. I, and, and actually, you know, for people at home, Bill and I used to go to investment conferences together before COVID with, uh, Jake Taylor and sometimes Toby Carlisle. And, you know, this has given us a chance to reconnect. We met through Toby, right? Yeah, we met you and the, Toby uh, used to talk a lot or still do, but like, that's how I think that I met you. Toby and I lived together in L.A. Um, for years, and I used to, I mean, I saw Toby more than anyone else other than my wife. We used to hang out all the time. And then you moved to the East Coast. And then I moved to the East Coast. Well, then he had kids. He had kids first. Mm. And then that that started to make things more difficult. And then um, he moved out of, uh, out of Santa Monica, and then I moved. Yeah, kids will do this. Yeah. Wow. But, but we had a good thing for a while. It was a lot of fun. So did you guys do uh, like research together when you would uh, when you were hanging out? How'd you guys meet? Uh, we met through Chuck Gilman. So I was working ah. for Chuck and he, you know, Chuck wants to meet everybody. Chuck does proxy battles. And so he wants ideas. And so we met Toby. And as soon as I met Toby, I was like, oh, this guy's going to be my friend. And he and I wound up <laughs> hanging out, you know, twice a week for five years or something like that. So did you do stuff with Chuck? Yeah, I worked for I worked for Chuck. I should know this. No, no, don't worry about it. Uh, my first my first job in finance was for Chuck Gilman and Ken Schubenstein. Yeah. Um, so I worked. I used to be an attorney, and I hated it and sucked at it, and had loved investing for a long time. And I wound up getting a um, a fellowship at Columbia Business School as a research assistant. And you know, this was back when there wasn't enough work for law firm associates. And so they'd offer you a fellowship and they'd give you 60 grand to go work somewhere else for a year. And I, I jumped on that. Yeah. And I, and I went over there, worked for Ken and then he and Chuck wound up hiring me and I worked for them for, you know, two years. Oh, that's awesome. So were you doing proxy battles with them? I mean, I didn't actually get to do one, but, um, I was sourcing them for them and doing investment analysis and all that. Yeah. Chuck, uh, Chuck reaches out occasionally. I think he's a listener of the show. Shout out to you, Chuck. Hello. Yeah, Chuck's a good guy. I, I yeah. love, I love Chuck. He, he's a very intense guy, but he's a good guy. Yeah, he, I, uh, I first met him at Berkshire a while back, and then you know he's always he always stays in touch. He's a uh, he's good at like pinging you and saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's hop on the phone and chat." But he is a huge infrastructure that makes that happen. Yeah, well, it's a smart way to do things. Uh, that's how you can make sure it happens. So then after Chuck, what uh, what was your investment journey like? Well, then I started a fund, a, a deep value quantitative strategy. Then from there, I actually wound up creating a, another strategy that's kind of our flagship strategy right now, which is, which is not quantitative, but it's very, I, I think of it as systematic, but it, a lot of it involves non-quantitative factors. 
how do you do that? Like what, what is a, I mean, I'm, when you say non-quantitative, I'm hearing qualitative, but like, what is, what does that look like? Yeah. Like we, um, well, so, you know, first of all, we, we want to create, it's kind of like when when you have a quant strategy, you want to have the fewest rules possible because the more rules you have, the less robust it is. And the more likely it is that it's been curve fitted. And I actually think that applies to anything. I really admired how Robert Vinal, um, you know, he kind of does the same thing as a quant does. He has this investment checklist and he tries to make it as short as possible. And, and I thought that was just brilliant. I loved how systematic that was. And so we did the same thing. And like, you know, the first thing we look at is, is payoffs. We want something where we think it's worth at least 100% more than where it's trading right now. And ideally more like something where we could make three times our money in three years. You know, and obviously we're not going to hit that every time, but, you know, that's what we're trying to find. And then the second thing would be we want things that are in oligopolies or duopolies or that have high market share in a fragmented market. You know, and then the third thing would be something that where it's has very low obsolescence risk, you know, where I could really, you know, if I if I, you know, had to stand before a judge and say, you know, this company will exist in 10 years. I would be telling the truth and it would be likely to be true. So factors like that. And we try to really, you know, really stay true to them. And, and occasionally you have to relax one thing over, over another, but one rule over another, but, but that, that's what we're trying to do and, and really faithfully execute it. But to me, it's, it's, it's actually very, it's a quantitative approach to something that's not quantitative at all. Hmm. How do you, where does the quantitative part come in? Just because I'm hearing you talk about like industry structure, relative scale advantages, obsolescence risk, you know, reduction of obsolescence risk. None of that is quantitative. So outside of the payoff structure, uh, like how do you quantify some of these factors that you're discussing? We don't we don't really do it. But I I guess I I think of it as quantitative in the sense that it's systematic. You know, I think I think that's the power of 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 quantitative models and things like that is that they're very they're very systematic and you're really trying to stay true to some principle. And so we're, hmm. we're trying to use that, but we think there's a large, a deeper reality than can be captured by numbers and quant. But we're trying to, you know, use that discipline to really trying to get the best of both worlds. So how do you, how do you think through like, you know, staying disciplined, but also having a short checklist? Because one of the things that I've thought about with a checklist that's uh, a little bit difficult is sometimes if you like my perception sometimes is like if you want to be very systematic about something, the checklist almost has to be insanely long. But like just to say, no, you know, that doesn't belong here. Yes, it does or whatever. Um, how do you how do you focus in on those few key variables and how long do you think it takes to get to the point where you can? Well, I guess what really inspired a lot of it was we, we've put together a, uh, a database of the greatest investors in history. So we found 85 people who have 20 plus year track records and they outperform by more than two and a half percent a year on average for, for that time period. So really pretty stellar track records over three market cycles. And when I looked at what those people were doing, um, you know, first of all, they're overwhelmingly value investors. 66% of those people are value investors, 
which is a pretty incredible thing because only 5% of the assets, only 5% of financial assets worldwide are managed by, you know, true value investors. So out of that tiny 5%, you get 66% of the greatest. So that it's very, you know, values very overrepresented, which suggests how powerful it is. But when we looked at what they were doing, we, we just studied everything we could about these people. And they tended to have very short checklists. You know, they really didn't have, they didn't, weren't trying to hit 10 things. They were trying to hit, you know, one or two things. Hmm. Not one, two or three things. Was there a commonality with the, the two or three things that they were looking for? Or did it look different depending on sort of the investment strategy? Well, just looking at the value people, that's 66% of the total. The value people, I think the number one thing that jumped out is they were looking for things with big payoffs. So, you know, whether that's, um, you know, higher returns or, you know, looking for something that's going to return 20% a year indefinitely versus, you know, that the market on average returns eight to 10% a year. So they were looking for something where it's double, double the return stream of the market, or they were looking for something where it's, you know, 50 to a hundred percent, uh, worth 50 to a hundred percent more at least. And, And what's striking about that is that it's so different from say, you know, you read, you read a lot of stuff that mutual funds put out and they do not target big payoffs like that. Not even close. What do they tend to, to target? If you look at, well, there's, there's sort of really two portfolios within each mutual fund. It's interesting, you know, C. Thomas Howard has done an, an interesting study on them. And basically if you look at the top 10 holdings of a mutual fund, of the average mutual fund, they perform they outperform the market by 4% a year. So this idea that mutual fund managers aren't talented isn't true. They're actually very talented, but they, but that's just the top 10 holdings. Once you get out of that, you know, they typically hold, you know, 50 to a hundred things. So they're just bloating up their portfolios with, with garbage. But even just looking at the, huh? Yeah. That's why they don't outperform. They're, they're smart people, but, but they're just, you know, they're just, they're just using asset bloat to make as much money as possible. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then they're they're diversifying the um, potential for outperformance in favor of not getting, you know, basically not taking career risk, right? Because exactly, if they don't, yeah, it's inter- it, it, interesting. It's kind of an interesting. It's a flawed model. You know, I think it's a broken model because basically your their their whole incentive is to run to have the least amount of alpha necessary to keep you as a client. Hmm. Yeah. And so basically you're giving them money and in exchange they get lifetime employment from you. That's the hope. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a your interests aren't really aligned. Yeah, I've um I've thought about in the past, like even, you know, Charlie, who I think we'd agree is one of the greatest ever, I've wondered, you know, if let's let's forget about what he is now and let's rewind to when he's starting his funds. Could I have actually stomached that kind of volatility with him at that time, not knowing he would become one of the greatest. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what my answer is. I think, uh, I think I'd like to say yes, but I'm not sure that I believe that. Yeah. I, I, I see it the same way. I mean, it's funny. People talk about how irrational clients are where they'll look at the best mutual funds over a 10 year period and the average client in it loses money. Yeah. And people are sort of like, oh, well, clients are stupid. And, you know, certainly some of them are, but 
the fact is there's just a huge disconnect in terms of trust. Yes. And so, and so it's this situation where they, they can't trust you. And so they can't be long-term investors because, you know, things change. People change their strategies. All sorts of stuff happens in, in mutual fan, mutual fund land. It's so that, that trust issue, it almost makes people do things that are, that are stupid. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's funny, it's not limited to money management, right? I think that it happens a lot with companies and often the trust is tested when the performance goes against you, right? And it's like, oh boy, well, now do I, did I really know what I thought I knew? Or, you know, you, you hit that point where you're forced to look in the mirror and say, do I know what I own? And I think that's the same for a manager, right? Do I know why I actually hired this person? And do I actually believe that they can get through this? Yeah, it's it's so hard to find. That's why, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we put together this database is, is we kind of wanted to study these people as, as people. When you read their investor letters or their interviews, you, you sort of see that these are people who are walking through the fire and, and this is their lives. You know, they're into this stuff. Yeah. You know, you take someone like like Seth Klarman, you know, I, he, he said something in an interview once that really struck me and, and made me realize just how passionate and thoughtful this guy was, where he was saying he felt that Graham and Dodd were sentinels watching us all and seeing whether we could live up to the principles they'd handed down. Hmm. You know, that that's a guy who who feels that he's executing a calling. Yeah. You know, that isn't someone just trying to get rich or play the market. Like that is a that's a different game. Yeah. And, and, a, and a completely different level of of commitment. It's it's beautiful. What were uh some of your big takeaways from the study? I know that I when we had spoken previously, you told me that there were like two basically two strategies, uh, if I could summarize it. And one was like a deeper value, maybe less predictable business, and the other was focusing on more predictable return streams. Is that fair or am I uh, butchering that? Yeah, there's, well, we noticed within the value investors that there seemed to be kind of two types. And and it's, it's like what a lot of people think. There were ones who bought high quality things that were inevitables and and, you know, they're kind of these islands of sameness, you know, in the, in the ocean of change that you see in the world. And, and then the second type were the deep value people. You know, it's interesting, probably only one to two percent of assets are managed by deep value investors. It's a deeply unpopular strategy. And, and yet they're 33 percent of the greatest investors in history. You know, so they're they're vastly overrepresented in, in the among the greatest investors. And, and with them, you see that they're, they're really, they're payoff hounds, right? They're sort of like, you know, it doesn't matter what you buy, it's the price you get it at. Yeah. That said, I noticed the best deep value investors cared quite a bit about quality, but they were willing to go into some really ugly situations to get it. Like the Chandler brothers, I, I think are the greatest deep value investors in history. They've made 37% a year for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, they they turned, I believe it was uh, $10 million into one or 2 billion in in 20 years. And, and it's, and you can see from their filings that they actually have the money. You know, they weren't running a fund, they were investing their own money, but you can see, you know, what they buy today, they'll buy, you know, a $300 million position in a company. Huh. And it's one of, you know, 20 things they own. 
but they they had a they had a strategy that was very interesting because it was so it married the two different schools of value just to the extreme where they would basically their strategy was go around the world and figure out where can I buy a country's crown jewel assets at, you know, one, two, three times earnings. Hmm. And so they'd go, they bought Japanese banks after the recession in 2001. They bought them at, you know, they didn't even have earnings. It was just a disaster, but they bought it at basically, you know, two or three times normalized earnings and they made, you know, four times their money in a few years. But they would do that, you know, in several different places. They went into Russia at one point. Um, they bought telecom assets in Brazil. Hmm. It, so they were, they were looking, uh, it sounds like for countries that might be having problems or, or trading at uh, depressed valuations because of whatever reason, but then they were looking for the highest quality assets within that beaten down market. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they wanted large stuff. It, it's very interesting. You know, there's there's kind of this bias today towards small cap and, and even micro cap where people think, you know, that's really the only place you can get alpha. And I used to think that, you know, back when I was working for Chuck and Ken. And I realized by looking at a lot of these great investors that that's not the case at all. In fact, if you're willing to leave the United States, a lot of times the best thing to buy are the biggest companies. Because huh. they're they're the safest, they're the highest percentage. You know, Gazprom in Russia isn't going anywhere. You know, I, would I invest in Russia today? I, I don't know, but um, but you know, the telecom at the biggest telecom operator in Brazil isn't going anywhere. You know, and the Japanese banks aren't going anywhere. So they they're just investing in these things that are huge and powerful. And and, I, and in fact, I think a lot of the greatest investors, when you look at their past investments, I was shocked. That's why we. In our own strategy, we started focusing on oligopolies and duopolies and, and things with high market share because I noticed a lot of these great investors, they would buy large caps, you know, and blue chips and things like that when they'd gotten crushed. And, and the thinking mm. was, it's easy to know. It's, you know, this is something, you know, will it be missed? Absolutely. If this thing didn't exist, it'd be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you're taking the probability of a zero off the table, I think, right? Yeah. If you're focusing on the most important assets. So maybe you're limiting, you're, you're actually, you're actually truly limiting your, your downside to, you know, sometimes if there's a, if there's a probability of a zero, the only way to limit that is by position sizing, but then maybe you're not able to optimally bet uh, your stack. Yeah, exactly. You, you're, you're really reducing that business risk. In exchange, you have to take more country risk. And there's really that risk in some of these countries that they might confiscate your shares. Yeah. Right. That's, that's not, you know, some airy fairy thing like it is in this country. In in these countries, it's, it's very low percentage, but it's such a scary thing that it tends to depress the values. And, and in some cases it can create incredible opportunities. Yeah. That's wild. And what were, what were some of your other favorite investors? Um, I mean, the didn't Chan- you say, but just real quick to close the loop on the Chandler brothers, didn't you say they were down like 70% on a position and they, they were just like, no, we're right. We're keeping it. But this is my favorite invest, my favorite investment of theirs. And this is why I love them because they're not like anyone else I know. Um, so they bought Gazprom, I believe it was, and it was, they put in 
I think a billion dollars into it, which, which was something like half their net worth. It might've even been more. And it went down 70%. And the guy, you know, Richard Chandler said to himself, you know, I could just say, you know what, I was wrong, but I just don't feel like I'm wrong. I just don't think I did anything wrong. I think my analysis of the company's right. The price just changed. And I think that's so different from a lot of investors today who would be humble, right? They'd say, oh, I realized my mistake and moved on. Whereas this guy didn't, he just kind of dug in, but in, without being arrogant. And he, he dug in and, and he, it wound up going back up and basically he got back to even, which is a huge win. Yeah, especially from down 70. Yeah, I mean, I think that was their greatest investment. And frankly, even with the, um, even with their investment in Brazil and the, the telecom operator there, that when they bought, that stock crashed and they basically lobbied the Brazilian government, this is in the 90s, to invest in the company. And the Brazilian government said, okay, you can do it. So I, they put in, you know, whatever it is they put in, $100 million or something. And it went down, I think, another 40 or 60%. So, I mean, these guys invested in stuff that you almost couldn't run a fund doing this. Yeah, you would get redemptions. Yeah, yeah. You, you get you get death threats. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, man. Uh, how many of the deep value people have had some element of control and or the ability to influence an outcome? For example, like they lobbied the government, right? Um, you know, I think of Buffett as a younger investor building these stakes in companies and, and drawing the line on the, you know, on the wall and saying, you got to get inventory below this line. Like he was not a passive deep value investor that was just waiting for the market to become a weighing machine, right? He mm -hmm. created a lot of catalysts. Uh, is that something that you saw as a commonality? In my experience, they were doing almost nothing to influence hmm. operations. They, they would, you know, in the, in the case of the Chandlers, they would, if they could get it, they would want a seat on the board. But they really weren't, they really weren't doing much beyond governance, make, you know, wanting to make sure there was good corporate governance. And among the others, I, I mean, I saw almost nothing where someone was getting activist with something or get, even getting active, actively involved in the operations of the business or anything like that. I was kind of surprised. Yeah, that is surprising. It requires a real belief that uh, the weighing machine will work. One of the things that I have wondered a little bit about value as a factor, especially among smaller companies, is, you know, with private equity everywhere now, at least in the U.S. Um, and likely going worldwide, have some of these like, you know, the leftovers. Why? Why is a company leftover is kind of the question that I I'm asking myself more and more as I look at some of the cheaper, smaller things. It's like, I, I have to think. The rebuttable presumption to me is almost that it's been dil diligenced if it's under, call it a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I mean, that's that's certainly a concern. Frankly, a lot of the stuff we see that's smaller has been owned by private equity or they tried to own it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting and you can, it's just kind of been churned. But that's the, yeah. that's the smaller stuff. Yeah, um, I was having a conversation with somebody who focuses on smaller, I think. Well, I know, but he, he told me, he said, uh, 
if you really want to focus on smaller, maybe start at like a billion or two billion and don't go like real small because the return on brain drain is probably not worth uh, what you think you're getting in in opportunity. He, he said there's plenty of, of inefficiency in that billion dollar range and they're like real businesses. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great advice. When I first started investing, the place where I got burned the worst was in micro caps. Yeah, it, it, well, easy to buy, hard to sell. Oh yeah, and it, it, I've, I've never forgot it. I the worst investments I, I've ever made, I, you know, were were in micro caps, and and frankly, something that I'm a little embarrassed to cop to now. But I, at one point, when kombucha got really hot, I, I almost bought some shares in Reeds, which made kombucha. Hmm. You know, there's this whole thing. Yeah. There was a write-ups on Value Investors Club. It was like everyone was like, kombucha, it's this new thing. And guess what? A lot of these companies are trading at, at value prices. And I wound up speaking to a friend and he he was he had looked at it too and he was he talked me out of it. But it's just been a disaster. And, and looking back on it now, it was it's such a stupid idea. I, I can't even <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what I was thinking. I mean, beverage is very sexy. Beverage is something that when it works, it can work in a big way. And Celsius is uh, probably the current beverage. But I, I had um, I had a successful investment in national beverage uh, following a short report there. You know, beverage, it's interesting. They've got high margins. There's a real takeout potential by some of the big guys. I, I could see it. Yeah. I, I'm glad. How did you approach the conversation with your friend with an open mind? Because uh, sometimes that's hard if you like an idea to discuss it with somebody and be open-minded enough to say, you know what, this person's got a legitimate point and I should stay away from this. Oh, I was 100% receptive to what he was saying. Uh, it, it, the other thing is he, he makes a good point. Um, you know, he's never seen a microcap actually fulfill its promise and become, you know, a mid-cap or a large-cap, right? That's what everyone's all, always all about. They're like, oh, no, this thing's going to be big. It never happens. I got to look at Expel. Expel has done a good job, at least on a market cap basis. Uh, but but yeah, I think it's it's definitely the rare the rare bird. It's it, it's vanishingly that. rare, and it's I don't know. It's something that just seems to incinerate people's capital. So I we we don't invest in stuff typically that size unless there's something really special about the business. I think something about the allure of small caps is um, it's one of those things that should make sense that they can grow a lot, right? Just, you know, you get yourself law large numbers, what's the base rate, the big winners can come from this. But um, I think the the base rate of really bad outcomes is quite high in that uh, relative to the larger stuff also. It's really high. It's it's really high. And, and the, I don't know, a lot of the people involved with them too are a mess. Yeah. You know, some you get you get some of these CEOs running their their fiefdom and they're just these guys are some of them are just nuts with the microcaps. I mean, it's a completely different world. Yeah, and then you've got this situation where you're relying on somebody like it it's weird to have a microcap in the first place, just like sort of in yeah. general. Yeah, why are you tapping the capital markets? Yeah. It, it's very odd. Yeah, you need some good answers to these questions. And there usually aren't good answers. Yeah, well, I think so. I, I guess that, that that goes to 
a little bit of what I was trying to get at. Why do you, so I think people see good answers because they want to believe there are good answers there, but not because there are actually good answers. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the allure of getting rich, I think. It's funny, you know, on Value Investors Club, which has all these people who are very sober, serious people, I've noticed that every once in a while, every few years, someone posts something you know, where it's like, uh, this company, this microcap has just created a new non-nutritive sweetener. And they're about to sign something with Pepsi or something like that, where there's some story and it gets some really high rating and a huge number of ratings and people pile into this thing and the stock shoots up and it's all these sober value investors. And then what inevitably happens is that the person who originally posted the idea gets so much shit from other people as it does not work out as the story slowly deflates that they never post on the site again. This is, this is a, this is a repeating phenomenon. I can understand that. I can understand that. But, But it's almost like just ignoring the money and everything. It's, it's, it's really, you're, you're betting parts of your life getting involved so wrapped up in this stuff, but it, it it turns so ugly and bitter. It's just, it's not worth it. Well, and the uh, I think part of the issue, too, is with the microcap area of the market, there's there is no liquidity when it goes wrong. Yeah. So people are like truly trapped and screwed. Whereas, you know, at least if if you're pitching something like Netflix and it goes wrong, anyone at any reasonable size can get out. Yeah. Like quickly. It's microcaps are not that game. Yeah, it really is an advantage in business just to have scale to be big. It, it's yeah. but it's funny. It's such a simple thing, but it is it's huge. It's it's huge. I mean, you can even see it. You know, we we've invested in a company that does aseptic packaging, and they they're the third biggest player. And you and if you look at, you know, the the, the second biggest player, which is a public company, you know, they've just got far better margins. And no one knows what the margins are of the top player, but it's. I mean, it's, they've got to be incredible, but it's just that, that those scale economics are so hard to beat. Yeah. I've been spending some time thinking about, I I spend a decent amount of time thinking about media, but, um, you know, you look at Netflix and I, I just brought it up, but, um, it's interesting to see Warner brothers is now pivoting and they're going to sort of pursue a different strategy. There may be a world where, um, Netflix has a real relative scale advantage. Um, I don't know. We'll see. It's uh, there's there's a lot of alternative uh, worlds that exist. What I've what I've been working on seeing is I used to think that uh, Netflix would would inevitably have that dominant position. And what I'm trying to get myself to realize is that was the first lens that I used to look at things Mm -hmm. through. What what does that lens make me blind to today? that could cause me to miss a world where like Apple and Amazon actually do have scale or, um, you know, Warner brothers and NBC and Paramount are, uh, you know, end up merging and now you have like a oligopoly, but it's, um, got relatively low barriers to entry, maybe big barriers to distribution. I don't know. But what I'm going through is just like trying to remind myself that, that the original lens that I saw something through is going to color the lens that I see something today through and how to avoid that analysis. I think 
think maybe the answer is you wait until it all shakes out. Yeah. And then maybe you make a little less return, but your return stream is more defined. Well, taking Netflix as an example, is that something that you've you've done a lot of work on? Is that something you, you're considering owning at these prices? I would be open to owning it at these prices. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little uncertain on the payoff uh, risk reward structure. Yeah, but yeah, I I think I think look, it's obviously better to own here than it was at six hundred dollars a share, right? Um, but yeah. Netflix for me is one of those things where it's just, I haven't done a ton of research on it, but when it, when it crashed, I looked at it and, you know, it, it's just surprising to me that their free cash flow is so low given just how much market share they have and how dominant they are. You know, I don't know their exact market share, but just their mind share is so big. And yet they seem, yeah. the content costs and are so big that they just can't get positive free cash flow. Yeah, I I would uh I guess that one of the biases that I think about this through is I would just say yet. Um and I think that when you're rewarded for doing something in the market which is driving subgrowth, I don't know how many internal conversations you're having about cost. And now they've got a large recurring revenue top line base and now maybe cost matters. And I think that's an easier problem to solve than it is to get to that top line. That's interesting because Uber is kind of in a similar situation where, you know, they, they obviously haven't turned a profit, but it would seem, you know, they, they occupy a very easy part of the ecosystem, right? In terms of getting a ride and all that, they're doing the easiest part. The software is the easiest part. And it would seem like they should be making a huge amount of money and, and they're not, but I mean, if they ever figure it out, it, it seems like it could be, it would basically be a value stock. Yeah, I need to, f I need to figure out uh, more about that company. Um, there's some, there's one investor that I know that I have a lot of respect for that's long that, and I should probably get more curious about why. Sometimes I get bogged down in just covering the same stuff over and over again. And I, I think that uh, one, I guess it provides a sense of comfort, but but I think the downside is like I miss a lot of potential other things. Uh, obviously, there's a trade-off in how you allocate your time. But like I don't know that the next piece of news on whatever content strategy Paramount right is pursuing, like I, I just the marginal benefit to my life of covering that I think is like pretty low relative to trying to figure out stuff like what's going on at Uber and being able to zoom out more and saying like, that's not even an industry I really want to mess with right now. This is an industry I do. How many in, in your, uh, and maybe the answer is none, but how many investors that were really good were uh, focused on consolidating industries? That's something that I see Buffett and Munger talk about a lot. Um, I didn't find it. I didn't find it a lot. But it did seem like, you know, it did seem like people wanted higher market share. That, that was a big thing. They just, they wanted those solidified, entrenched players in, in the industry. You know, that, yeah. that came out. But I, I didn't, I, I didn't find a lot specifically on consolidating. 
It, it was it was also tough to find that level of granularity for a lot of these people. You know, some of them lived in the 1930s and 40s or, or 50s and 60s, and you're getting stuff where they they weren't, you know, they weren't the language people use today to describe investments is so much more sophisticated and rich than it used to be. Yeah. You know, there's so many people who know so much about investing right now. It's, it just sounds, people talk about it in, in a much richer way. You, you even look at investment write-ups from 20 years ago and they're, they're so much shorter. They're shorter and more succinct, but they're just far less kind of intellectually dense than you see today. Yeah. It, it's a different world. You know what I think is kind of interesting um, is like I was reading, gosh, I think it was an old, well, I guess it was only like six years old, the Graham and Doddsville. Maybe it was only five. I don't know. But but they were talking about uh, credit acceptance, which I know is like a, 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 it's a subprime lender for cars, for those that don't know. And uh, it's very controversial. Shorts have gone after it a number of times. And um I've talked to like financial investment, like a, an investment banker that covered financial entities. And he, he was like, I, I know their results are incredible, but I can't figure out how they do it. Um, but that's, a, that's a company that over the years, as you read the pitches, they really haven't changed. And yet the returns of the stock are quite good. It's, it's almost like, um, I don't know. It's like some of these businesses are truly endowed with winning. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting business. And, and to the banker's point, um, we actually owned it, owned it years ago. And I, I was trying, I would run through a sample loan for them and I couldn't square the economics. And, and I actually wound, and I, it really just, I could not square it. And I, I wound up connecting with somebody who, who walked me through it and I'd be happy to send it to you. But he, but he helped me figure it out, and and I actually think that it does make sense. Um, you know, just looking at it at at the loan at the average loan level that that the that the economics do square. You know, I was thinking they were somehow screwing over the dealers or something. Something wasn't making sense, but it it I don't know. Th this guy helped me, and it was the only reason I was able to kind of figure it out. And we wound up buying it, and it was a decent investment for us. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's an interesting space. I don't know. I, I had a conversation with Tyrone V. Ross when this podcast started, and I used to have such a natural aversion to subprime. Um, and now I, I realize, uh, you know, I guess how I would say it is it's a shame that it has to exist, but yeah. it does have to exist. And if it didn't exist, there's a larger shame out there, I think, that's reality. Uh, yeah. So... You know, it's one of those unfortunate consequences of life. It's, I feel the same way about the company. I've, I've sort of been torn, you know, are these people actually helping, you know, people who are lower income or are they, you know, being pretty rough with them? Because a lot of the stuff, you know, they have key locks and stuff like that on the car. You know, that's, that's pretty ugly stuff. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, you know, the, the company was founded because, you know, certain people just couldn't get a car. They couldn't get to work. They couldn't function. Yeah. And if you don't have the key lock, then what is your law? Like, then what do your loss ratios actually look like? And then what do the interest rates have to be to the person that does want to make the payments back? Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's a, the older I get, the more I realize there's a lot of gray area in life that I, I used to think I had answers. Now all I have is questions. 
I mean, I don't know about you morally now that I'm middle-aged, I'm, I'm kind of like exhausted. Yes. Like, I'm I, super I thinking, apathetic to a lot of moral debates, which makes me feel horrible to say out loud, but I used to have strong opinions and the more that I've learned, the less strong my opinions have gotten. That's how I feel too. I, I feel like I, I've just hit a point where I, I don't know anything anymore. Yeah. Almost. It, it's, you know, you see these pat answers to things and it's just, you just see how much it falls short and it's, this stuff is so complicated and hard. It's, you know, I don't know what it is. I really do feel like, you know, when, when so many of your cherished beliefs have, have not panned out the way you thought they would and all these things that you thought were true were maybe half true, you know, it really, I don't know, it strikes at something deep in you and you just kind of wonder, you know, what is true out there? Yeah. It, it, it's very hard. Well, I think what is true is uh, thinking in terms of probabilities and rather than like being certain that subprime lending is bad, maybe training, you know, myself to say, look, I am almost never going to be more than 70% sure of anything. So if I yeah. say I'm 90% sure, that's really about 65% sure, right? Or 63% sure. Uh, mm. So my highest degree of confidence on anything is 55 to 63%, I mean, which that, is kind of a sad way to live because it leads to boring conversations. But I, I used to think I like new things and I just don't know that I knew anything. That's how I feel. But I, I guess I'm, it's on the one hand, it's exhausting and it's difficult, but I feel like there's something good at the end of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think when you look at someone's life, you know, people have such certainty and, you know, such big hopes and dreams when they're younger. And, you know, there's now all these statistics out on human happiness across a person's life and people are the most unhappy in their 40s. Well, that's because they have no time to themselves. That's what I'm convinced of. <laughs> that I think that's a big part of it. I think the other thing, though, is, you know, as a young person, you set the bar so high that it could never pass over that bar. Your your expectations are, it, it's almost, you know, it, it's it's almost a tyranny how high they are. Yeah. And and I think it, when you go into middle age, they come down, and that's very painful. Yeah. It is so painful to have them come down. But then I think when you come out of that, I think you have a more realistic view of things, and you're more appreciative of what of what you do have and i i think there's some there's some it's almost like you're just burning stuff away in a fire and and what's left over is the good stuff hmm i like how you said that when i was talking to william green and uh he had mentioned i forget how the story goes i think this is the second time i'm bringing it up on a pod and he brought it up but um you know these great investors they ended up having uh these personal lives that were sort of in shambles, right? And, um, or if not, I shouldn't say in shambles, but like, I don't think that people would want their personal life. If you asked a young person, do you want your to raise your family this way? They're not going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And I just, I kind of wonder, you know, I said that I'm only 70% sure of anything. I, I'm 90% sure that the time that I put in with my family, I'm not going to regret. And I am... 80% sure that if I have to live in a smaller house down the road because of it, I'm going to be okay with that. And I'm 
somewhere between 80 and 90% sure that my kids aren't going to blame me for that decision. So I guess that I used to value things that I now perceive to be sort of a, like, like, um, like being right. I used to care about, I don't fucking care anymore. No, I I don't either. I just avoid it. (laughs) Like if somebody else wants to be right, fine. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. It's weird how life has shifted in that way. I, but I think what you're talking about is I, I feel the same way. And I think what you're talking about is, the, is I think demonstrates the power of, you know, seeing so much stuff that you once cared about and once meant gave you so much seeing it kind of just burned off. And, and what's left over? What's, what's left over your kids? Yeah. Right. You know, if you think about it, if, you know, an asteroid were heading towards planet Earth right now, what would you do? Yeah. I'd just hang out with my family. Yeah, I'd call up some people and say goodbye, and then I'd hang out with my kids and, I don't know, try to make some sense of it with them, and but just spend time with them. Yeah. But it's, but it's yeah, like that's right. so much of that other stuff is, but to your point about percentages, right, that the low percentage stuff is just gone. Like, that is fucking gone. But what yeah. you're left with is the high percentage stuff, your kids, you're, you know, doing stuff with your spouse. Now, you know, when it comes to work in the markets or whatever, I do enjoy competing. Oh, yeah. But uh, I I have realized that I don't enjoy it nearly as much as some people. Some well, people thing, are obsessed with it. Well, the, the funny thing is, is it's there's competing and there's competing. And, and it's funny. I was talking with my dad the other day because my son is going through this thing where he's, you know, trying to decide whether to do, you know, travel soccer or travel lacrosse. And lacrosse is one of these things where you have to get plugged in early. Yeah. Or, or you're on a lower track. And my wife and I have been sort of going nuts over this and wondering what kind of people we've turned into. <laughs> You've turned into the normal American parents at this stage of life. My friends and I were having this exact conversation. It's terrible. Anyway, but I, continue. Well, I was talking with my dad about it and he was kind of making me feel like shit for caring so much. And and he was saying, you know, you know how much is your son picking up on how much you guys care about whether he's, you know, one of the best at something or really good at something and how much of that is coming from him. And, you know, I was saying actually a decent amount's coming from him, but a lot is coming from us. And he, and he was saying, you know, well, is, does he know that there's anything else, you know, out there other than winning? You know, so basically, you know, when they're playing a game, is there something else out there that's more important than just the outcome of this game? And and, and for a kid to know that and understand that, that this is just a part of, of something much more important, his life and his development as a person. And I guess going bringing it back to the competition thing, there are competitive people and there are competitive people, right? There's competing where you're just trying to like kick someone else's ass and be the best and and have that feed your ego. And then there's, I think, doing more like what Seth Klarman is doing, where you're just trying to be thoughtful and you're really trying to stay true to first principles. And you do want to win. You do have that. But it's by doing that that you win. Yeah. And I, and I love the latter. And I think the first is just scumbaggery. I guess I'm going to push back on your dad a little bit and say that we don't want to have a society where playing sports isn't about winning. But he's not saying I that. I do think when you, I know, I know, but I, th- I think like your kid, my kids <clears throat> are going to step on a field and think like winning is the goal here. Right. And then, but 
I will say one of the happiest moments in my entire life was an eighth grade football game that we played uh, and we lost. But the amount of improvement that we showed from the first game that we played to that last game and the way that we came together as a team and how we all executed what we like what we could execute to our best ability. Uh, that was probably, that was one of the highest moments that I, that I remember. So I guess it's not all about winning, right? I mean, there is something to be said for, like, we were just flat out not going to win a football game against this team that we played. Like, we just didn't have it. I mean, it, in, in life, it pays to be a winner. But, yes. at the, but at the same time, if, you know, as a hypothetical, you know, you take two athletes and one of them is, you know, say a great quarterback and the other one is, you know, just decent, you know, just because the one, one of them is great and not that you're saying this, but just because the one, one of them is great, it doesn't make him a better person than the other one. We, we all, yeah, th- no we, we all think there's some larger reality there to it. And my yeah, dad, no my doubt. dad's point was, you know, me, Scott, I'm being kind of a little shit about the thing, the whole thing. And it's not just about totally about that. It's, Dude, I'll tell you what, though. I wish that uh, that youth sports were a publicly traded uh, <laughs> stock. I would buy it all day long. It is such a racket. It's such a racket. Lacrosse? It's so expensive. So a, one season, one fall season of lacrosse here in Fairfield County is $2,000. Yeah, they have a fucking stick and a ball. Like, what are we charging for here? It's crazy. It's totally crazy. It also seems to be the sport that um my peer group has leaned into as it's the one sport that our kids uh i guess still have a chance to be moderately good at (laughs) totally (laughs) totally Totally. it's it's like i remember when lacrosse was still something sort of new and now i've got all my friends have their kids in lacrosse it's like oh we're just this is just the next thing i gotta get my kids on the next next thing yeah you do I, i don't know what that is though I don't either. It's probably going to be like dart throwing or something. Ugh. We'll make that professional. My parents are the type where they're all about, they're, they'd be so mad if they saw this, but they're all about getting into a good college. And so they, yeah. they made my kid's sister play the harp for years. Yeah. And, and it, she, that makes total sense. But she's forgotten it. She, they've gaslit her and she's like, oh no, I love the harp. <laughs> and she hated the harp. I mean, watching this kid it was like watching a kid in a factory or something, you know, like her little fingers working the strings on the harp, just miserable. And it's like just this sham thing she's engaging in to get into college. But my dad was telling me the other day, he's like, you know, you got to get Scotty into fencing. That, that's how you get into college. And I was like, yeah, we, well, we have other priorities. We would like him to not be a virgin when he's 30 years old. So, <laughs> so that's more important to us than him getting into Harvard. And he was just flabbergasted. He was just like, like, how could you say that? so uh you don't think that fencing is a hot thing to tell uh you know whatever you're interested in about that's uh that's funny oh man that floored me that was a good joke it's also true by the way i've I've got a kid that you know i don't know that he's uh actually i shouldn't say this because we we bribed him with money we said if you can do your spelling by the time that school starts we'll give you 200 bucks i have never seen this kid work so hard in my life and I never thought that I would be that parent, but like, I don't give a shit. I will pay this kid for every single A. And I just hope that I don't set the bar too high because he's going to keep asking for more and more. But like, I used to see 
kids that would get paid for grades. And I, I think I was jealous of it. And my parents never motivated me in that way. Now that I see what it's doing for the child that I'm motivating in this way, I'm 100% going down this road. I, this is very interesting. I, I might try this myself. Oh, dude. I, I mean, he is a machine at working at his spelling right now. What does he want to spend he, the money he, on? He'll walk by me. He'll be like, you're going to owe me the $200. <laughs> and I've never seen this like side of him. And I'm like, okay, dude, I, I will happily pay it to you. You know what the funny thing is, is what he's doing is in a sense smarter than just blindly wanting to learn whatever they teach you. Yeah. Right. He, he's, he, you know, I'm sure he's got some very interesting ideas for how to spend that money. Yeah. Except part of the problem is he's telling me about this stupid G-Wagon he wants on Roblox. Oh, no. I was like, you're going to take some of this money and you're going to buy a digital G-Wagon that you're going to get tired of this game in like, you know, whatever, three weeks. This is stupid. We 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 went through that. My son played this game where they took dinosaurs and they would put guns on them and just shoot each other. But the dinosaurs cost $100, some of them. Yeah, it makes no sense. It's just insane. Mm-hmm. It's totally insane. But... Kids like it. I mean, I guess I did stupid stuff like that too, but I'd like to say I didn't. But I love that. I love that you guys are are doing the the paying for the grades. I, I mean, I will, I will admit we've done something similar. Child younger than him blew my mind. Read Winnie the Pooh, and uh, like, how are you going to give one kid some money? So what? What? And then and then not the other when the other is naturally motivated. So now what I've ended up doing is that kid got 50 bucks for finishing the book. <laughs> He's younger, so 50s like feels big and he gets another book. I love it. But this. I can't be I can't spend $50 per book. Like this kid's ch like just churning through books. So I got to figure out I got to get some deflation in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Now now the next thing is is can you start paying your wife? Can you bribe her too? I think that I th I think my wife and I are paid plenty. I think we need to pay ourselves less. <laughs> <laughs> we need to reduce the consumption to give the money to the children. Okay. Uh, I think that's the best way this goes. Okay. My wife and I have started, we do these things where we're kind of gambling against each other, where I'm like, you know, she'll be like, if you cannot raise your voice with the children for, you know, like 24 mm. hours, I'll, you know, take you out here. Or like, we'll play you know, instead of playing like strip poker or something, we'll play poker, but we're playing for, you know, you need to take me to Cape Cod for a weekend. When's the last time you guys played strip poker? That sounds fun. Yeah. No comment. Yeah. Tuesday. No, Good no, not you. Tuesday. Not Tuesday. It's like. <laughs> uh, life changes. Anyway. Um, where were we? We were talking about these great investors who never talked about things like this, I don't think. Actually, you, I, and that's a shame. They missed out on stuff. Actually, let me, let me say something about strip poker. Now I don't want to play strip poker with her because I don't want her to see me. I don't want her to see me, you know, just sitting there with my shirt off. It's yeah. it's not as pretty a sight as it used to be. I do get that. I've uh, I've, I've stopped. We're, we're eight days into being fully dry here, so I'm not I'm not saying that I'm stopping drinking. But the amount of uh, sugar that I can avoid and the weight that is coming off is quite nice. Yeah. It's impossible to lose weight when you're drinking. I think so, too, especially at this age. Yeah. It's a good lubricant for social activity. But uh, once you hit 
the age that I have hit, uh, I think it's time to start worrying about how fat you're going to be when you're older. It's awful. I hate it because I it's I, everything I love to do makes me fat. I understand. How old are you? I definitely understand that. I just hit 40. Oh, God, I'm 42. I think 40 is a difficult birthday. Yeah, I, I don't think I I don't think I took the birthday that tough. But I definitely think I've got signs of midlife crisis here. And, it, and it's manifesting itself in apathy. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still argue is wisdom. Yeah, it could be. It could be. But I've, I've just gone. I've gone kind of fully fuck it mode. Yeah, I, I actually think there's something. I, I get it. I, I've, I've hit that point, too. But uh, I, there's something powerful about that. I think that's probably right. Uh, I also had some big life events that kind of like, I, I do think that I've, I've done things over the past three years that have like, I used to run from a lot of insecurities. And now that I've, I've taken care of those things, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm actually a man and I can be proud of, uh, like what's going on. Uh, so now I, I just kind of don't care as much about things that I used to feel like I, I guess used to be insecurity driven at their core. That's interesting. Cause, uh, just in. You know, I've you and I have hung out. I, I don't pick up on that at all off of you. You do seem very confident. Well, it's a nice shield, but uh, it's not true. But I'm getting there, or have gotten. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Some of it was, uh, I don't know, for a while. Like, I wanted people to like the ideas that I had. Some of some of the ideas have turned out to be really terrible. So that hurts when you're public and people are listening and the ideas are terrible. But but now I just don't really care if people like the ideas, if that makes sense. It's, it's more important for me to like the idea than other people to like the idea. I, I Nobody likes my ideas. I, I never get much traction anyway. I never did. No one seemed to care. No one wanted to hear it. It's probably a good thing. I guess. I mean, even this investor study I did, I was all excited about it. And I try to tell people about it and they're just, their eyes glaze over. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, this means so much to me. And they're, they're just like, they're like, oh yeah, that's nice. And I'm like, no, How much is... time did it take you to do it? I spent years doing it. How you know, many was, years? A couple of years. Yeah, that's a lot of work, man. I didn't only do that. I would just, you know. Yeah, but it was a passion project. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to me, you know, the results were life-changing to me, but not to anyone else. So, so okay, so you went into the project more of a deep value guy, and it sounds like you've come out of it more of a industry structure, potentially Garpy. Is that fair? And not really Garpy, but, but I mean, a, it's so hard to get those where you can, you know, make a, a big payoff on a lot of those. Yeah. So, so many of those are just so, so well-priced that yep. it, it, even when they're, they're cheap, it's really hard to get a big bargain there. But yeah, I've definitely come out of it more. I, I, you know, when we were doing the quantitative deep value stuff, we didn't care about the quality of the business at all. And, and now I care quite a bit. I'm personally intrigued by these ideas where you have uh, a good business under a crappy business and the good business is less than call it 30% of the, the crappier business. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, my fear with some of those like really good businesses to your point is that they're, they're 
there's nothing that I am going to discover about those businesses. I mean, there's very few insights that I'm going to have about those businesses that are like, yeah, the market thinks it's great, but I think it's awesome, right? Mm -hmm. Or the market thinks it's awesome and I think this is the greatest business that's ever existed. I do think that there's something to be said about the businesses that are... Uh, I'm thinking of a couple that I own that are they're smaller and they've got engines underneath them that I'm excited about. And I think that either uh, the market underappreciates it or even if the market does appreciate it, uh, I can see I can see why my returns are going to be connected to the underlying business creating more value in the future rather than saying this stock is mispriced today and I'm waiting for a re-rating. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's a flawed way to think, but I, I do think that it's a little bit of a more stable premise where you're looking for like true economic value added over three to five years. I, I think that's more aligned with the way the world should work. Obviously, price paid matters. How focused are you on on price paid? I, I, I sense you're more focused on the quality of the assets and yeah, I spend a lot more time on the quality of the assets. When but you... I mean, I care about price. I, I now, you know, in retrospect, it may not have worked. But I mean, I, I laid down a bet that I took the long side of a curate short zoom trade in, you know, 2021. Mm -hmm. So I obviously believe entry multiples matter. Mm -hmm. But I am I, I am uh, I don't like to comp, you know, uh, across industry necessarily uh, would maybe be a decent way to say it. Like, I, I don't think that just because something is priced at a 15% free cash flow yield, it's any cheaper than something else at a 4% free cash flow yield with no other information known. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. It's actually, you know, it goes back to a discussion you and I had a few years ago about deep value investing where you were saying, look, I, I get a lot of these things, you know, have a high free cash flow yield, but you know, with a lot of these, there's a, a low terminal value and it's, it's known. It, it's pretty yeah. high percentage. And I, you know, I didn't really have a good answer to you back then, um, which bugged me, but I have thought about it. And I actually think the best deep value investing is the kind where you are investing in something that has a decent terminal value to it and where you can find that. I mean, you know, occasionally the other the other kind is worthwhile, but you have to be comp compensated for that, right? It can't just be like a ten percent free cash flow yield. It's got to be huge, and they have to be distributing the cash or something, which they usually don't do. But what you described is what is what is what actually kneecaps a lot of would be deep value investors, where they they are truly buying garbage, and it yep. and it hurts them, it burns them. Yeah, and I th I think the other thing is, I've I've put this out on Twitter a couple times, and people. Hit me. I, I prefer if you have a specifically with commodity companies because I think they're so hard to value for both management teams and investors, um, which may make them in the too hard pile, which I'm sympathetic to. But if you have a high free cash flow yield on a commodity company, I far prefer a dividend to a buyback. And people will say, well, you can sell pro rata into the, the buyback. I think that creates some timing issues. And I just, I've seen too many examples of management teams turning on the buyback spigot at the tops of markets and mm. turning it off at the bottom of markets to think 
that a buyback is actually going to be executed through the cycle. Whereas like if you are giving me a true cash back and it doesn't have to be a recurring dividend, right? It can be a special dividend. I'm fine with that. But like cash back off the table to me, even though theoretically less tax efficient is probably what I prefer in those setups. Yeah, it's interesting to reduce the terminal value risk that because every buyback, all you're doing is you're like increasing your relative percentage of terminal value risk. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, if you look at the market historically, you know, dividends are actually a far better proxy for free cash flow than what people say free cash flow is. You know, if you, hmm. like, do, do you know the, you, know, you probably know this, but uh, backwards and forwards, but uh, like, you know, the free cash flow yield plus growth equals your expected return. Have you, you seen that? Yeah, plus or minus whatever multiple fade, right? Yeah, but like, it, it's actually For something you, right? Buffett uses. Yeah. Um, where he's just, you know, he's kind of valuing it like a bond, except the coupons grow. Yeah, it's roughly bond math, yeah. But it's interesting, if you look at, if you look at the market using that, if you take the, the dividend yield of the market, the average dividend yield is, is I think about 3%, and then you add the average growth rate, which is 6% uh, for earnings, that gets you 9%, which is the which is actually the average um, market return hmm. for the S&P 500. So dividends are actually a really good proxy for, for free cash flow, and arguably better than a lot of these models you see out there that forecast giant free cash flow in the future. Interesting. I think, I, I mean, just like um, riffing on that topic, I think part of the reason maybe, I mean, what we're really doing when we're buying like uh, minority interests in companies is like you're really trying to figure out what is the free cash flow to minority common equity and a dividend. Uh, I'm going to sound like such a boomer here, but a dividend at least, um, I don't want to say guarantees because it can always be cut, but it, it does promise, at least in the near term, some true hard cash delivered to minority common shareholders. I, th I think that's an underappreciated, it reduces agency cost, in my opinion. And I think that it's an underappreciated uh, discussion. Yeah, agreed. I mean, so so much can happen between the lip of the cup and and that that possibility. Those those potential risks so frequently become actual actualities. Yeah, it's it's one thing that I I also think growth investors tend to benefit uh, from I th is a reduction in agency cost. I do think that they uh, increase the probability of overpaying risk, but maybe. Uh, they would say that that's that's a risk that they're uh, paid to mitigate, right? So that's within their control. And at least if if you're in more of a growth company, the risks that are outside of your control, I, I I'm sympathetic to an argument that they may be lower. Right. They well, they almost have to inv they have to reinvest in the business. That's right. So it's so it's like they're 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 stuck. Yeah, and everybody's kind of on the same page. Yeah, and you want them to be, right? It's kind of like yeah. the discipline of debt when it comes to private equity. It's like you, you want there to be some some strictures there where they can't just do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Ironically, you get that in public markets and it creates, a, I don't know, a lot of distortion in, in behavior. I th well, I shouldn't say distortion in behavior, but you see how some of these levered equities trade and it's just like, man, they, they fly around. Yeah. Yeah.
for somewhat good reason and somewhat not good reason. I don't know. Uh, something that has been a blind spot for me has been capital allocation. It, it's so hard to figure out and it's destroyed so many potential good investments. How so? Uh, you know, a company um, being overly conservative and issuing stock in order to capitalize themselves. And they don't really need to, but, you know, management cares more about, you know, being, making sure they're way under levered, but it, but it just completely yeah. decimates the upside in a stock, um, you know, in a bad acquisition, things like that, where it just, it just dilutes what's going on. Yeah. I think um, the, the person that has helped me a lot uh, think through this stuff and I, I need to implement more and think less, but is this dude, uh, Mike, Mike P, uh, he's now at WCM, but he used to write under non-GAAP and, um, his framework of looking at proxies for clues of how management is going to be incented and when they think that they're backing up the truck for themselves and how you can get like a clue from that. I think that's so important because to your point, like if you're a company as you're talking that's ringing out my head is uh, Evlara, who just agreed to a purchase price that I think most of the shareholders are pretty upset with. And it's like the management didn't have any skin in the game. Like they just, so if you have a management team that doesn't own a ton of the equity and they do draw a salary of call it a million bucks a year and they get some options that they're going to rebase down if the stock goes down, like, okay, issue some shares, right? And we'll protect we'll protect our means of living. We'll continue to draw this salary. No one can really, it, it's not going to be a breach of fiduciary duty to raise capital through equity, right? And like the minority shareholders just kind of screwed at the end, but that's not really our problem. I, I think is the attitude of a lot of management teams. Oh, I, I think, yeah, definitely. And it's not even malicious necessarily, right? It's just an incentive issue. It really is. It, it's not. I don't, it's not malicious at all, but it's just... I don't know. It has, it has a malicious effect, but it, but it's, yeah, yeah, they don't, I mean, it's, it's sort of, everyone's just trying to get their own and yeah, that's right. And it's just, it just, it's, it's so rare where the interests line up and when it does, it's, it's special, but it's just so rare. Everyone's just trying to do the thing. I, I'm, I'm constantly struck by that. Yeah. How much, I mean, I, I, I would love to sit down with some of these great investors and ask them, you know, how much did you think about incentives, you know, and stuff like that? I suspect a lot. Yeah, I think they did. I, I think they did, but they they were willing to to buy, <clears throat> excuse me, even when it wasn't there, where they didn't know. Yeah, that's tough, though. That's the old Buffett. You can't make a good deal with a bad person. Yeah, but I think... Or bad incentives rather than personalizing it, right? I think if it were obvious, they, they probably wouldn't wouldn't go with it, but in a lot of these situations, it's just an unknown. Yeah. And there's really no way to, to, to bridge the gap. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I had a question, a follow-up. Now it's gone. Oh, well. What do you want to talk about? I don't know. We've covered middle age. Yeah, covered, that was a good covered one. Covered paying off our kids. <laughs> um, I had an investing question. Damn it. That upsets me that I dropped that. Oh, well. It's a consequence of this format. Yeah. I should maybe have a couple questions written out, but eh, don't worry about it. Yeah, what do, what, thank you. I appreciate your permission. What do you what do you do? Do you edit around stuff or 
or do you just run it? No, I'll probably just leave this. Yeah. I I like that. I I, I like it when you leave it. I like the little, the little dead spaces in interviews. I've actually, when I first heard about podcasting, I was like, this is such a stupid idea. It's just, it's so you're getting, you're getting the worst. You know, you're not like when someone goes on, you know, Bill Maher's show, you're getting their best lines, right? That, that, yeah. that's supposed to be the idea behind it. But with a podcast, yeah, you got 10 minutes. Yeah. With the podcast, it's, it's the opposite. You're getting all of it. And I was like, this is such a terrible idea. And then I started, I, I don't like to listen to them. I like to watch them, but I started watching them and I almost can't go back to the other format because what you're really, you're getting the best stuff, but it's kind of polished and it's kind of bullshit, right? It's a sound bite. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And if if you just get talking to somebody, you actually find out what they think. Yeah, exactly. I, I find that so much more interesting. Like, you know, looking at someone like Louis C.K., who's a really funny guy, I think he's so much more interesting in an interview than his stand-up yeah. is, or even his show was. I, I enjoy him more than the product. Yeah. And I enjoy that. And that's true for everyone I like. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that's what's so powerful about podcasts is you get to know somebody. Yeah. You know, um, it's amazing what, what how many people want a podcast, myself included, by the way. Uh, but like what a shitty business this is. Well, it, but right? it's no. a shitty business if you're only trying to make money off this. But if you have a fund or something like that and you're and yeah. you're you're kind of cross pollinating it, then it's perfect. That's right. Yes, it's a very good marketing vehicle. I still need to figure out what I'm trying to cross pollinate. My problem is going back to our conversation of I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to sell shit that I don't believe in. So like I don't I don't have I, I gotta come up with whatever the the other uh you know, the monetization plan is. Yeah. I, I think events events I would I would believe in. I think I'd be quite good at those. I think I think you'd be really good at that. I think you'd be really yeah. good at that. Well, I'm going to do a couple. I, I saw that you emceed something at... Uh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Markel. You're, uh, is that what it was for? But you're, uh, yeah. you're, you're a natural for that stuff. I think that's what... That'd be really well, good for you. We'll see. I like it. You should put together... Let's nice talk to people. You should put together an event. You can get... You know so many people who, who could talk. Yeah. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. It's... Uh, some of it's a matter of right now I'm in the in the process of figuring out what time of year and where. Uh, so basically the first planning stages. But I've been I've been thinking about this a lot. Florida in the winter. Yeah, that's uh, that's an enticing idea for sure. So but, but I bet you could get a lot of people. I think it'd be fun. And I don't know. People just want to go do something. Yes, now they do. That's consequence of being. Uh, locked up for a little while, I think. But I'd give anything for a good investing event. You know, even, you know, we went to that um, Fairfax annual meeting. Yeah. And that, I loved hanging out with you guys, but the meeting was dull as dirt. I'll tell you what I, what I liked about that meeting was I didn't realize how many portfolio companies they have. I, I didn't either. And throughout the world. Yeah. But I did think, I thought, Prem's pitches on certain ideas were kind of wild, like the Greek bank that he was like, you know, it's trading at 0.2 times book. And if it gets back to one times book, we're going to make a lot of money. It's like, yeah, Prem, that is how the math works. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's talk about the whys behind he's, uh, that, you know? He's interesting because he he sort of does both, right? He, they buy 
they own Bangalore, part of Bangalore Airport or something like that. Yeah. But then they'll own, you know, these garbage wood products businesses that are just, you know, cyclical and a mess. But but he, but he gets them so cheap. Yeah, they just got taken out of RFP. Yeah. Oh, one thing that we talked about last time that we talked, uh, you've got like the deep value guys and then the quality guys. And and I, I think with the commodity ideas, I think they're easy to know when to buy because they're just like so bombed out, but they're impossible to model the IRR. Mm-hmm. Because like something like on Resolute, they were objectively correct. I mean, a private buyer came out and paid a lot more and they've been buying the whole time. But that took a long time. You know, you got to, that's a hard strategy to run. And it's almost like a macro commodity type call. Um, But I don't know, like copper in 2016 was super easy to see. Uh, You know, I I bought, this is my problem with commodity stocks. I bought Freeport McMoran. I'm pretty sure it was December 2016. It might have been 2015. It was my last last time at the bank, uh, the last December I had. And it was so bombed out. Yeah, it was 2015. Four bucks, four bucks a share. Today, well, 435. Today it trades for 3141. You know what I made on that? Maybe 50%. It's so hard. It's because it's, I I guess this is why we don't do a lot of that stuff. I mean, one, I just, I, I just find it hard. I, and I, I don't naturally understand it very well. But the other thing is I want to try to buy stuff where it's easy to, relatively easy to come up or at least simple to come up with a forever value for the company. Yeah. And yeah. when and when and when the when the when it's not bounded by anything and it's just so the variance is so big it swallows the mean. I, I really struggle with those things. Oh, I like how you said that. Thank you. And when the variance swallows the mean, I think that you have to demand such a huge discount to what you even think it might be worth because the probability that you're accurate in your assumptions is like super low. Yeah, which most people don't do, right? They're more focused on trying to get the cycle right and all these things. But I would argue what would be better in a situation like that would be to get a bigger discount, you know, which is basically demanding a bigger payoff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which is which is actually, you know, I would argue that's what Nassim Taleb was doing back when, you know, he was trading and how he became independently wealthy is that he was basically value investing in randomness. Huh. where every, everyone would think oil's going to do X. And he says, well, what if it does Y? Well, what's my payoff? And he would he would be guided by the payoffs. He'd say, well, if it does Y, I make 20 times my money. Yeah. So let me bet on Y. And that only needs to happen, you know, a certain percentage of the time. And you have a really interesting strategy. Yeah. But he but it was very payoff centric. Yeah, which I think everything is. I I, uh, I got to follow up with um, Matt Boson. Uh, I, I don't. He had expressed interest in coming in and I'd like him to come on, uh, but I I haven't been ready to interview him. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is with expectations investing, how do you implement that in a in a like real world way? Um, and one of the things like you can say, well, like there's so many elements that can go into DCF that I almost. I want to figure out if there's a way to have like I put in the the balance sheet and the income statement and you know the cash flow statement's going to flow from those two 
but can I have something that gives me back a Monte Carlo simulation of like all the different ways that I could get to today's stock price? Mm -hmm. And then like, obviously it's only as good as like uh, it's garbage in garbage out type stuff, but I'd like a visual representation of what a stock looks like. I I think uh, this guy, Jim Carson, who was on would argue that that's what the options market is. But, um, I don't know. I want to. I want to figure out if there's a computer program that would do that because then I think you get to actually see the variance and see the mean. Now it's going to be imperfect because it's the future, but it would intrigue me to see that. What does that sound like to you? I mean, that's pretty interesting. I'm, well, it's interesting because what you're saying, he's right. That's very. I would never put that together myself, but what, he's right that that is what the options market does. Yeah. What would be interesting is if you could create a strategy by, you know, using pair trades and things like that, where you could recreate the same thing using equities. Yeah, I, I'm certain it's possible. I don't think I'm smart enough to do it. But that would be, you know, you're basically talking about each company is is several different future versions, right? Yep. Probabilistically. Yes. But then the way to harness that and only bet on a certain part of that would be through a pair trade, Right where you want to, you only want to bet on one or two of those versions that you think is interesting and you want to short the other part. Yeah. And like, which ones are, which ones are priced well, right? I actually think there's, there's, there's something kind of brilliant with that, right? Cause then you're not paying, you're not paying theta you're for on the options. You're not paying, you, you don't have to pay for the option. You're, you're, it's basically a costless option. Hmm. You got to pay the interest on the short, but yeah, you know, up until quantitative easing and zero interest rate policy, people actually used to make. I didn't know this. People used to make money on their shorts. You used to get paid. You know, you get paid the interest. Yeah, the rebate. The rebate rate used to be, you know, like three, four, five, six percent. Yeah. So it was like you you structurally were making. You know, it was a positive carry trade. Short shorting was. Hmm. I don't know, Bill. I think you're. I think you're like splitting the atom. You're on finance here. I think this is kind of cool. Yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the things that's really neat about the podcast is I get to talk to people that expand my brain. Well, you've just expanded mine. Yeah. Well, it's all about sharing and learning, right? That, that's the whole thing. I want you to throw an event. I, I'm yeah, excited well, about I will. This. I will. The first one's going to be a golf event because I got to do something that I know I can do well and that I can do well. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. I, I like it. It gives me energy. I enjoy seeing people. Uh, I will do one. For sure. But, you know, I just got to just got to put it together, man. But I guess what, what do you do? Is it you just have to rent basically a conference room at a hotel and then you got to get speakers and you got to plan basically two or three days of, of events and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of work. Yeah. I. I yeah, I don't want to give away too much of what I'm thinking. I, I You do need speakers. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I think that the idea of somebody telling people what they think is their best idea is the the way that I would want to go with it. I think like roundtable discussions would be more my version of what I would want to listen to if I attended a conference. What if it was um, instead of someone presenting their best idea, which I agree is boring. Um, what if it's someone sharing, you know, some part of their investor investing journey? Or something. Yeah. It's a little bit. It's investing, but it's more personal, which yeah. I think interests us both more. Yeah. Well, that's kind of this brand, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
but that that or, or that could be interesting and and you know maybe that in a round table setting yeah i think that's right just need to do it it's good I, I think it's exciting the execution is always more important than the idea i know i hate that <laughs> I, I hate that <laughs> executing sucks it's so hard yeah but you know it's also what's really fun and it's really fun when things come together yeah so got that going for us so uh what what are you looking at like uh what's your day-to-day look like now what do you do what would you say you do here scott uh well i've been um i've been really trying to market my fun lately so i've been getting on twitter and uh, putting out research through Twitter and, you know, submitting it. I, I just had something published by advisor perspective. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I've just been putting that stuff out and, um, I don't know. I've been just investing. Uh, but the stuff we own, we, it's, it's very, you know, the day to day is boring it. You know, we don't, we hold stuff for a long time. So it's, there, there's not a lot to do in terms of the day to day. And, you know, we only own 10 stocks. Um, I'd like to own more. How do you get comfortable with that? There, there's actually a lot on this where basically the benefits of diversification rapidly diminish after six stocks. Yeah. And so, you know, we own, we have about 25% cash right now. And then, you know, the rest of it is in equities. Uh, I don't think any of it's in the U.S. It's all throughout the wow. world. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a that's an interesting thing for somebody to consider from a diversification standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to be invested in the U.S. I haven't found a single thing though that meets our our sort of uh, unofficial model. Hmm. There's I can't be I can't I can't find big enough payoffs with a company that I think is you know an inevitable that's that's just an extremely high percentage business. I just don't I I haven't come across that. So, what are some of the countries that intrigue you from that perspective? Uh, China, which, you know, obviously has a lot of issues and, um, you know, I, I'd say unlike Munger, I'm not sure I admire them to the degree that he does. Although it's, it's great that so many people have been raised out of poverty, but obviously a lot of other things there are pretty horrific. Um, and then just random places. I, it, it's just, it's more about investing in the, in the, co- in the company, not the country. Yeah. So. Um, but we found stuff in China, you know, we own Alibaba and we own, um, great view aseptic packaging, which I, I think is actually a really interesting stock. That's just been trades at a bombed out valuation. Hmm. Um, but that's something, you know, that's something that's a good example of what we've been talking about where it's, you know, it's got really good EBITDA margins for, you know, basically the last 20 years and with inflation going on right now, it's, it's earnings have cratered but it's a, it's a consistently profitable business. It's just going through a tough period. And it's just, you can basically buy it at almost the same price it traded at in 2004. Wow. It's kind of crazy. How do you trust the uh, numbers? Um, I mean, I don't trust anything. Um, but to a large degree, yes, they, they return their market cap. So they pay a dividend and they, they basically return their market cap every 13 years. And dividends. Oh. So, well, you know, could it still be a fraud? Absolutely. But does that reduce the risk? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to, to make a fraud out of, uh, out of dividends, right? You need some cash. I guess it could be a Ponzi scheme, but you need some cash. 
Yeah, but they don't even tap the capital markets. So for financing, so they're they're not hmm. a creature of the financial markets. Um, you know, they've got very little debt. You know, and then we own a a telecom operator in Latin America. It's stuff like that. We're just we're very sort of payoff centric and trying to go where we think those are really big and we can be really wrong a lot and still come out ahead and not be investing in things that are just a complete disaster and going to dig ourselves into a hole. That's got to be exciting to uh, have gone through the research formulated. Uh, it sounds to me like this is probably who you're going to be for the rest of your life as an investor and like to come to that part of a journey. That's exciting. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. I it, it means so much to me to hear you say that because I no one else seems to think it's that interesting. But to me, oh, I, no, I, I, think I think it's, it's super so interesting. interesting. Yeah. But I but that's exactly how I, I, I feel. I I feel like, you know, I found something that just really fits my nature and and, and I think has worked for a lot of other people who who I admire. Well, that's a that's a pretty good way to uh borrow brilliance, right? Go back, study their track record, reverse engineer what worked for them, and then do something that is uh different from what most people are doing. So now the rest is up to you to make sure that it works. Yeah. So, so you're just charged at the execution. Yeah, yeah the hard part. That's right. <laughs> it's actually the same thing. I, I do the same thing with my writing. It's I, I, you know, I have a select number of writers, so I just really admire and I, I love kind of researching their lives and how they write. And it's, it's funny. I've, you know, it's very hard to write and I'm always curious if there's some better way to do it. And I've realized studying these other people, there is no better way. There's no shortcut. It's just this, it's just this journey you have to go through and there's, there's no way to make it easier. There's no way to make it faster. You just have to do it. And there's something yeah. about, about seeing that, you know, in the experience of other people, as well as your own experience, that it's very powerful. You know, that, that goes back to what you were saying. It's a high percentage belief. Where, where, yeah. And as a result, you're not wasting time on low percentage, stupid things. You're not wasting your time on shortcuts. You're just trying to do the work. And there's something just so powerful about that. I have come to believe that all the rewarding things in life are very hard and many are very tedious. But executing that over time is where rewards come from. It, it really is true. It really is true. And I, I used to believe when I was younger that if you were a fit for something, if your, you know, your personality or your temperament were a fit for something, you wouldn't work a day in your life, right? That whole thing, if you have a job you love, you yeah. work a day in your life. I think that is bullshit. I, I don't think, <laughs> I, I've nothing I've done that's worthwhile, I'm curious what your experience is, has ever worked out that way. It, it, yeah. is, it is always cost, cost me something big time. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think, uh, I think if if something is not work, uh, like there's going to be days that it's work. And, you know, I mean, I, I I think that when Buffett says that he tap dances to work, uh, you know, a lot of life, I think, is repressing the memories that you hated as you were going through them and then looking back at them as if they were roses. <laughs> totally. And, like, I highly doubt that when he was going to Solomon Brothers, that was like some fantastic experience that he tap danced to. He was probably like, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, these guys are going to bring my ass down. Uh, 
So I, I think, uh, yeah, I think that the, the work part of life is where the good stuff comes from. And if there's no, if there's no crappy parts, then it's probably not worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think that's a good place to end, man. I really appreciate you having me on. It's a lot of fun. I've loved it. I enjoy talking to you. You can come on anytime. I'll have anytime you need someone, let me know. I'll I'll hit you up in a a few months to let me back on. I may need a guest sooner than that. You may become a regular. I'm around anytime. All right. Well, hopefully less. Hopefully uh, people discover, uh, you know, your research and what you're putting out. And uh, I ping you and you say, you know what? I got meetings that day. But uh, if you don't, you're welcome to come on. And uh, thanks for doing this now twice. I appreciate it. I I love it. And I can't tell you how happy I am that you've created such a great podcast. Well, thank you very much, man. I'll I'll, uh, try to keep it going. Terrific. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. Take care.